Welcome to episode 19 of the Swampflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I'm Cece Chapman. This, of course, is the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. Coming to you from 7th Ward, New Orleans. We are recovering from a long weekend of yard sale activity, carrying around heavy furniture and kicking up dust in our own house. But in the meantime, we did find time to squeeze in a whole bunch of movies, which we'll be talking about shortly. And we actually ventured out to the theater once in the past two weeks. Ugh. What did we see? We got to see Edge of 17. <laughs> I like that uh, this time of year is packed with all these like Oscar sort of like heavy dramas and mm-hmm. like prestige films and we only made time to go out to see this like 90s teen comedy throwback but it was so good yeah no it was great I loved it what uh what do you think about how it like carried that like 90s teen comedy tradition into the 2010s yeah no I, I feel like uh it used that framework really well uh of the 90s like slightly raunchy teen comedy but then it kind of updated it to like current sensibilities our protagonist's problems are a lot more serious uh she is not exactly socialized she does not know how to relate to people um in the millennial sort of vein and she also never really got over the death of her uh father when she was like 13 or so which isn't really a spoiler because it happens like in the it first like, five in the minutes first, like five minutes in the movie we know why she's like messed up at the age of 17 uh <laughs> The closest I came to, like, outright bawling in that movie was in that first five minutes when she's, like, a young child that has trouble making friends at school because she does have, like, some sort of, like, off-putting personality traits. And her dad's dropping her off, and he's, like, pretty much her only friend. And she says to him, I wish you were small so we could be friends. And that is so heartbreaking. <laughs> There's just something about that that, like, it's like, I don't even know these people very well yet. And that, like, really hit me hard. I like how she's not always, like, a good person. No. Which, no, she's not. <laughs> which reminded me of being 17. Like, you have, like, all this big egotism and sort of, like, narcissism. But at the same time, you're, like, you're like reaching out for other people to connect with. And it's this really strange um, dichotomy where you both hate and love yourself more than anything else. And you don't realize how, how much you're pushing other people away when you're doing that. Yeah. And I like how the movie is more about those personality traits than, like, trying to make you laugh every every 30 seconds. Yeah, and they, they never really, like, push the character to, like, do, like, the typical makeover thing. It's more like, you need to be a better person more than, like, you need to change your wardrobe. Like, dressing like a dork isn't what's holding you back. It's, it's something more serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, definitely if you're, um, I know there's a lot of, like, really big prestige movies to catch up with right now but I think it's important to support this film it, it doesn't do very well but it, it that's strange to me because it seems like it would have a very wide appeal it's a very smartly written version of stuff like I don't know Clueless and Mean Girls and Heathers and all that stuff people already enjoy yeah it's a good addition to that that Pantheon is that the right word for sure, that sure yeah sure. Pantheon <laughs> Well, besides that one trip to the theater, I did watch a few things on VOD. Well, actually, it was it was on streaming. I watched a couple home invasion thrillers. One was Hush, which is on Netflix, and that is a home invasion sort of by the books from the director of Oculus and this summer's um, Ouija Origin of Evil. Uh, this guy, Mike Flanagan. Uh, it was kind of the same as those other two titles I just said. They're they're like kind of good genre exercises. He doesn't like change the game or anything like that, but he does like good efficient versions of the movies he's making. What was a, a lot more memorable was the corny one I watched on Hulu starring Keanu Reeves and directed by Eli Roth of all people uh, called Knock Knock. It was the first Eli Roth movie I've ever bothered watching and it was hilarious. We were talking about the Nick Cage Wicker Man on the last episode. This is... Keanu Reeves's version of Wicker Man. Every line he says is just so alien to how humans speak. <laughs> he just says stuff like chocolate with sprinkles, my favorite. I can't tell if he's overacting or underacting, and he gets <laughs> what? Yeah, it's a it's it's so weird, and he gets seduced by these two young girls who then, uh, in true Eli Roth fashion, turn the scenario into like this torture porn. Um, weekend uh, while his family's out. I think usually what I stay away from Eli Roth movies is because they because they do look like torture porn. Uh, this one is so cheap and so flippant that it feels like a prank. And even that title, like Knock Knock, sounds like the setup to a joke. And Keanu Reeves does supply a crazy amount of just like campy humor in the movie. 
I don't know if it if all of it's intentional, but it is a very fun, dumb film. So yeah, if you usually avoid like Eli Roth and like nasty home invasion thrillers, that's not usually my mode. Uh, but this one was like fun to laugh at in that Wicker Man sort of way. Well, mostly though, we were busy preparing for this episode with with a wallop of five ballet horror themed experiments. A lot of like different kind of artsy experimental films in this in this batch. Some pretty straightforward ones. Yeah, I mean, like the people the the films you would expect to be in a ballet horror you know, compilation are, are definitely in there. True, true. Yeah, there's just like a wide range of different kinds of movies in this episode, which is good. Um, but before we get into that, a Movie the Minute segment. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. You want a child? Every new life calls for a life to be lost. The equilibrium of the world must be maintained. Do you understand? I am prepared to die in order to feel life grow inside me. We are speaking of possibility, not certainty. Are you willing to accept the risk? What must we do? Hunt down a sea monster. Cut out its heart and have it cooked by a virgin. But she must be alone. When your majesty eats the heart, you will become pregnant instantly. And now it's time for our Movie the Minute segment. This is where Cece and I bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, This week it was my turn to pick out the film. I went with Tale of Tales, which is ranking very high on my upcoming Movies of the Year list right now. And I just kind of weirded out by how little how little it's being mentioned, how much it's been forgotten since it came out in the spring. Um, this is a sort of intricately shot fairy tale adaptation in the old school way of fairy tales, where they're very brutal stories, very violent, dark. There is a level of magic, but it's not this whimsical for children Disneyfication of of the style of storytelling. It's three interconnected vignettes where instead of them being rigidly separated, there's three kingdoms that are near each other and the the characters sort of float in and out of each other's lives. Each kingdom has its own problems. So in one kingdom, Selma Hayek is using black magic to get over her troubles conceiving a child and that leads to a very long, twisty tale of extreme violence. Uh, In another kingdom, you have Toby Jones trying to reconcile his control over his daughter's life with her desire to leave the kingdom and live her own story and that also leads to very extreme violence and then the third kingdom you have vincent cassell is a king and he's this sort of like marquis de sade type lush who uh drinks and fucks his frivolous king life away and that also leads to extreme violence uh, and we'll see. We'll hear a little bit more about Vincent Cassell because he plays um, a uh, ballet teacher in, in one of the later movies we'll be talking about today. All these things sort of come together in a very loose way. The movie begins and ends with them meeting up, but other than that, the stories can sort of exist separately, and you just sort of float in and out. You don't. You don't get one continuous strand. I recommended this to Cece particularly because one of the first movies we ever bonded over was The Fall. The one masterpiece Tarzan's managed to get out in his very long and very uneven career. And I was just wondering how you felt about it. Do you think it, it approaches that same area as The Fall, or do you think it's a just completely different kind of beast? Oh, I think it approaches. I don't think it's as transcendent as The Fall, uh, because it is not about storytelling. It is just storytelling. And I f- tend to find stories about storytelling to be far more compelling than just a straight telling of the story. I would say that this film doesn't have any sort of framing device like The Fall. Visually, it is really beautiful. I did not get to see this on the big screen like Brandon did, but I did get to see it here on our fairly large television. Um, But I would say the visuals weren't quite as good as The Fall. There was a certain amount of CGI, whereas The Fall, everything was done in camera. Everything was done using puppets or miniatures or just shot on location. But that also, you know, requires you to have 
a crazy budget and to trick people into sending you to other locations to film commercials that you wanted to just use for your movie so that you could film them both at the same time, which was a very brilliant bit of trickery on Tarzan's part. <laughs> but uh, this entire film was filmed in Italy, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful p- part of the world, but you don't quite see the, the same stunning visuals. Yeah. <laughs> You do get the sets, like uh, Tarzan picked out those like beautiful sets, mm-hmm. and this movie does find some gorgeous locations, but like you said, they do have to supplement some of the budget with CGI. I, I, I at least appreciated that in some of the weirder moments, there's this beast that one of the kings raises from a, from a young version of itself. I don't want to spoil too much of that plot. That thing is supplemented with a puppet at some point so you get this sort of like Cronenbergian monster on top of what looked a little cheap on the CGI side you can tell this is like a micro budget indie yeah Um, and like you said you didn't even get a chance to see it because it only played in in New Orleans for like one week yeah and I I think I was taking I was taking classes at the time so I just didn't have a good night to to catch it uh when it was playing this spring which is a shame yeah and even the fall had enough time for someone to recommend it to me while it was still in the theater and then we went back and she watched it a second time so it's kind of crazy that like this one is slipped way more under the radar than that one what which of the stories did you think was the strongest out of the three? Ooh, i don't know uh i guess i really like salma hayek's story but that was because I, I liked I liked the two protagonists of that story. I thought they were really cool. Um, I have a little bit of trouble with the 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 Toby um, Toby Jones the Toby Jones story, but I don't want to like give anything away in that one. Yeah, uh, so Toby Jones is the one where he's trying to control his daughter's uh, independence, but he's also sort of disinterested in her. And if there's any morality to that tale, there's some sort of play in the fact that he should have been paying more attention to his daughter's wants instead of just like imposing his will upon her i don't think he ever tried to impose his will on her except when he like made a proclamation and then felt the need to like follow through with it i don't feel he was ever controlling of her life at all he was limiting her options for leaving he just wanted her to be around he didn't though he didn't care whether she was there or not he was trying to do his own experiments and you know he found out she wanted to leave and then he needed you know a prize essentially for somebody to solve a problem with his experiments that he couldn't figure out but I don't really feel like he was trying to control her at any point except for that, that moment when he's like, well, I told everyone you would do this thing, and now you have to do it. <laughs> I guess the way I was seeing it was that basically she wanted to leave the kingdom. Well, she wanted to get married. She, she to was get very married. obsessed with the idea of the romantic like Lancelot, Camelot type of love. And he basically set up a situation where she would not be able to pick her own suitor and leave the kingdom the way she wanted it was under this ridiculous, like you said, experiment with this animal he's raising. Yeah, but she never expected to be able to pick. That's true, but she wanted That's a certain. A she wanted a certain princes. type of husband. She wanted a handsome, like storybook, and instead he marries her off to the most horrific monster in the kingdom. And I guess the part I, the part I was trying to get around to was my, my one reservation it sounds like you kind of had the same thing with this movie is that monster his relationship with her does get quite brutal yeah it's very trigger warning there's rape in this because it's a fairy tale and that's what happens in fairy tales (laughs) thankfully it's not a lingering no you never see anything you know it happens but you don't see anything uh but she is married to some one she doesn't want to be married to and the marriage is consummated and it's not they don't pull punches there it's it's no it's rape and it's awful it's a fairy tale <laughs> yeah but it's definitely not it's definitely not as bad as something you'd see on like game of thrones or something like that no no, no it is not that yeah but yeah at least that story does reach a satisfying conclusion though and i, th- I think if any of them have this sort of like morality tale where someone like gets their comeuppance i think toby jones's king is like sort of shamed for how he treated his daughter and she sort of gets some retribution for for how awful and like sort of controlless her life has been she, she's had no control or agency in her life and it's something she does claim in a sort of roundabout way by the end well i disagree with your your assessment on her and her father and i don't think it's ever fun to champion a rape revenge plot so no um do you think this qualifies as a horror movie well, based on all the trailers at the beginning of it, uh, I think uh, they're trying to po- posit it as a uh, horror movie. 
because I think we saw what four horror movie trailers. Yeah. That was the only type of trailer before this uh, on on the DVD copy that we watched. I don't think people who usually watch horror movies would be particularly satisfied by it. I can see that. It, it it's more of like a mood than a. Uh... Yeah, horrifying things happen. But... Right. Um, it's it's kind of like The Witch earlier this year. If you like went into that expecting yeah. a horror film, you might be a little disappointed. I mean, yeah, there's lots of blood and there's lots of monsters and like throats get slit and like people get stabbed. Like it's scary, but I wouldn't let somebody under the age of like twelve watch this. No, it's very brutal. Like it is a violent film, which I guess I was trying to convey in that opening uh, plot synopsis as loose as it was. There's no, like, respite where you get away and you're like, oh, this one story's cute and it's a break from the horrific violence of the girl getting married away or Selma Hayek trying to, like, use black magic to, like, make herself Conceive fertile. Conceive a child, yeah. There is no escape. Each each story is dark in its own way. Yeah. I know by the end you said that you thought it was kind of a loose sort of ending. Do you think that the movie didn't do, like, that good of a job of wrapping everything up so that it felt like one piece of the whole, or...? No, not at all. There was some question as to whether or not one of the previous characters had survived and reappeared at the end, but I, I don't think that was particularly open-ended. I'm pretty sure that character didn't survive, and what we were seeing was just another person performing in their place. Yeah, I, I, I like that it's a little lyrical and ambiguous in that way, but yeah, I, I think I think it's kind of a good choice not to um, put too fine of a point on it. I like that the stories only interact when these like three kingdoms would have to meet together for some diplomatic purpose, like a marriage or a death. I thought that was kind of cool that it didn't like push itself in any sort of grand statements or anything. The stories are very separate. And like you said, it's about the, the individual tales just sort of each playing out instead of the kind of storytelling in general. Kind of like The Fall, where it's about the power of narrative and who's telling the story and how they shape what's happening. That's sort of completely removed here. This feels just sort of like traditionalist in a different way. Yeah, I would say they, they use a lot of the same visual cues to, to get the story across, but ultimately... They're very different movies. If you want to catch up on Tale of Tales, it is playing on Amazon. It might not be the most beautiful movie I've seen all year, but it is very specific, and it's it's something unlike anything else you, you might see in, in your 2016 viewings. Well, the truth is... When I look at you, all I see is the white swan. Yes, you're beautiful, fearful, fragile, ideal casting. But the black swan, it's a hard fucking job to dance both. I can dance the black swan too. Really? In four years, every time you dance, I see you obsessed getting each and every move perfectly right, but I never see you lose yourself. Ever. All that discipline for what? I just want to be perfect. You what? I want to be perfect. <laughs> Perfection is not just about control. It's also about letting go. Surprise yourself so you can surprise the audience. Transcendence. And very few have it in them. I think I do have it in Ah! You bit me? I can't, I can't believe you, you bit me. I'm sorry. My that fucking hurt. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Uh, we're going to be talking about five classic ballet horror films uh, from the 1940s until today. Joining for this conversation, Swamp Flicks contributor, Allie Hobbs. Hey. She came all the way down from Portland to talk about this very specific horror genre. It's kind of my favorite, though, so <laughs> it works out. I feel like we missed a few uh, that we could have written about, but they looked we... kind of bad. Like, there was some from, like, the 2000s. Yeah, wasn't there one? I don't know. I looked briefly. There was, like, one from, like, Korea, right? I don't know. That might be the one. It was, like, yeah. The Stairs and the Stars yes. or something like that. That looked yeah. really rough. And wasn't there a Red Shoes remake as a horror movie? There was one from the 30s, like before the Red Shoes with like Lon Chaney in it that looked really weird. See, that oh. one's about a male ballet dancer oh, okay. in this case. And all the ones we watched focus on female ballet dancers. And you're right. I think there was a different version of the Red Shoes from like the 2010s and It had something. nothing to do with the other Red Shoes. They just shared the title <laughs> and had like a pair of like Red Shoes dripping blood on the cover. 
Oh yeah, it's like a like one's red heel, which is has nothing to do with ballet either. Oh, I, I saw ones that were ballet shoes. Oh, okay, blood. maybe I made that up. Though. There I might be multiple covers for this movie, but the ones we pick, I think, are kind of like representative of like the heights of what ballet horror would look like. And speaking of which, from 1948, The Red Shoes, uh, from Powell and Pressburger, two British filmmakers, not usually in the horror genre, and I don't think this film is mostly horror anyway. It's kind of like a drama about a ballet dancer and a composer who sort of form a romance as they're ascending the ranks in their artistry together. And then it sort of culminates in this huge tragedy. But there is a 20-minute stretch of the film that is a performance of the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Red Shoes, through a ballet. Which is horrifying because a woman dances herself to death! (laughs) So yeah, those 20 minutes feel like a little horror short. And it is like the most striking part of the movie because it completely separates from the narrative. And you just have this stretch of what, this sort of like demonic shoe salesman? Yeah. Mm -hmm tips this girl into trying on these shoes and she dances at a party and once the party's over she just keeps dancing until she dies yeah. she uh, dances through heaven through hell just can't stop dancing uh, i think in the story she dances at her mother's funeral and they kind of imply that in the the movie but it's not very explicit it's all very like dreamlike yeah you don't see whose funeral it is she does dance at a funeral but i kind of thought it was her yeah, own i was gonna say i thought it was her own but no, in the story it was her mother's funeral, yeah. and everybody huh. was very upset with her for dancing at her mother's funeral. It kind her of, mother died of grief because she wouldn't stop dancing. Yes. It kind of works that it would be her own funeral, though, because she goes like through hell yeah. in the movie. And she's yeah. gone for a while, I'm guessing. like Everyone just doesn't see her for a while, so they just assume she died. And by that point, she looks kind of like a zombie. You know? yeah. Do you think it's cheating to call this ballet horror? Or is it just, the, uh, just that one segment that we're really like honing in on here? I think... Um, Boris uh, Lermontov. Yeah. He's like kind of like psychologically a horrific villain. Even though, even if he's also sort of protagonist, but he's, you know. He's a Svengali figure. Yeah, he's very like. He controls all the players. Yeah. Both within the ballet and also like in their actual lives. Mm -hmm. He does kind of like a like mad scientist foreigner vibe to him that you would usually see in, uh, in old horror movies, I think. I think the vivid colors in that red shoes segment uh, where she's dancing the ballet are really terrifying and beautiful at the same time. Yeah, it's the lurid, like, red and greens and blues of, like, horror films. Uh, And also, you know, the costumes from that. You see the devil, and you also see a gross Jewish stereotype within the shoemaker, who is also the devil, obviously. Uh, There's also some minstrel players in the ballet scene that... Uh, stood out to me this time. I don't think I ever noticed that before. They're they're background characters, but yes, they are there. Yeah. Very much so. And then, you know, there's also the, the culminating tragedy, which is horrific. Like, a person can't have both things. Like, it hinges on this idea that you can't devote yourself to art and have anything outside of that. And it does psychologically tear you apart to attempt to have both. And you see somebody descend into madness because of it tragedy ensues yeah and i mean obviously we're saying tragedy so someone dies they focus in on the dead body and there's like a decent amount of blood for it being a 40s like yeah. prestige picture but not as much blood as you would expect i mean there yeah, could have been more i was gonna say there could have been more it's kind of unrealistic dead body but it's still kind of gruesome and it, to go back to like the art taking or the person's life, like wasn't Maura Shearer like a dancer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, she movie? she's so like, and she continued to be a ballet dancer afterwards. Yeah, so I wonder like how much input she had on she, the idea of that, you know. She reappears in um, Powell's movie Peeping Tom as a dancer as well, yeah. uh, in a really messed up scene. I love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think she was ever like. Even though she identified with the character Vicky, I'm sure in a lot of ways. I don't think she ever was of that prestige of ballet dancer. Just because she did, like, marry and have kids and, like, do all those things. And, like, so she was like, well, I can go into film still. But she never, like, was part of one of those touring, like, groups. She didn't, like, you know. She was never a prima of, like, any particular, like, ballet company. She just practiced every day and worked really hard at it. But And when you're talking about ballet people, too, you're, like, talking about their bodies as an instrument, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a weird thing. But she's not exactly shaped like a classic ballet dancer, I mean, it might have also been different in the 40s. I haven't yeah. seen a lot of older ballets, That's too. True. I know that they're a good bit more sculpted now. But yeah. the the uh, makeup they put her in is so gorgeous that, like, yeah. she has, like, kind of wings in her eyes uh, that, like, sort of 
dart out like daggers almost. Yeah, she just like it's there's some parts in it that she just looks like a doll, like a toy doll, and I think that plays in well with like the fairy tale. And and in the uh, original story, the fairy tale is actually like even more gruesome than the movie. Like uh, I think she cuts her feet off, and the the feet keep dancing inside the shoes. Which uh, would have been a weird addition to this film if they had sort of managed that. Um, I, I just don't think they had the effects for that one because at one point the shoes do dance by themselves, like through like stop motion mm-hmm. and mirrors. Uh, they do some like really cool in camera effects for that, which obviously couldn't happen during the actual ballet. So what we see as the audience is definitely a, a cinematic version of a ballet well, with special effects. I think symbolically, though, through the tragic ending, that is kind of the ending. Is the shoes keep dancing, you know? Yeah, the shoes go back to the shop, right? For, like, their next victim or something? Yeah, Does but, it... like, even, like, in the movie movie. Oh, okay. Like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah gotcha. like, the shoes keep dancing, like, after the trash, you know? I, I think the two stories do match up with each other eventually, even though there's no, like, love interest in the fairy tale or anything yeah. like that. No, there's a love interest. She leaves him behind at the fair in order to keep dancing. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But the shoes are more important than the dude in that in that story. I guess that kind of matches up eventually. I think that's true for both yeah. stories. Yes. You're right. No, that makes sense. So I guess uh, falling from the heights of that expensive Technicolor prestige picture in 1948, uh, the next movie on our list was in 1960. It's an Italian film called The Vampire and the Ballerina. It's a cheaply made horror film uh, about this group of uh, ballerinas that are staying in a castle while they prepare a, a musical number that's all very vaguely defined uh the ballet that they're practicing looks more like showgirl uh <laughs> hip shaking kind of stuff the movie's very erotically charged uh it's so many shots of their like butts uh girls in lingerie just sort of like looking scared in this house and then you meet these two vampires who are having this very strange unromantic back and forth where they hate each other but they're sort of stuck together um when they turn into their vampire form they literally transform into monsters this kind of like ugly rubber mask that eventually falls apart and degrades when they like meet their eventual end because the movie doesn't really surprise you in terms of plot like the vampires aren't going to win in this case but i was very surprised by how beautiful this movie could be and it's like weirder moments um i wasn't quite into it but you're right i was surprised by how like visually interesting it was and you know i was sitting watching it and the dance scenes came on and i was like i don't know if this is ballet but i still like really enjoyed the dance scenes like <laughs> i think they were my favorite part actually yeah you know, it's like sort of ballet <laughs> yeah, as far as use of shots go there was a couple really cool shots the first victim is a very traditional Dracula style victim. She gets bit, she falls ill with a mysterious type of anemia, eventually she dies and is buried. And when they bury her, they bury her with a, a little glass window in her coffin so she's awake during the burial and you actually like see from inside the coffin the dirt as it's falling on her little window, which stylistically is a, a is a more complicated shot than they really needed to do for a schlock film that was pumped out extremely quickly after uh the christopher lee no uh, yeah 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 the christopher lee um dracula Dracula was was a surprise hit so they were like we need more dracula movies in italy now and so they just like cranked this one out really quick so like the fact that they did these stylistically interesting shots was really fun and surprising i thought it was actually a pretty high quality film for it being garbage yeah it felt oddly ahead of its time like this this period is pretty early for that European vampire erotica, which there's a lot of that in the 60s and 70s, like European, like, quote-unquote art house. They would sneak these art movies over to America that were really just an excuse for people to look at women's bodies. This one's unapologetic about it, and it's very early, and surprisingly gruesome. Like, the the vampire actually looks, like, gross and yeah. unnerving to me. And like you said, the dance scenes are, are not necessarily ballet. They'll like mix in like a pirouette and they just basically like shake their hips. Yeah. But uh, I like how it mixes that sort of art house like shots with this like trashy erotic film. Um, if you look back to like old Russ Meyer pictures, it's literally just people like sometimes in the, in the 60s versions anyway. It's just people like shaking their bodies and you watching them. And it's complete asides from the plot. And I like how that, that this movie just sort of airdrops that concept into a uh, into sort of an arty horror film. Yeah, and I think you can kind of tell that it's an earlier version of these films that come later. 
because the way they present the sexuality is a lot different. Like by the 70s and 80s, you get a lot of these long lingering shots on like one female and a lot of these like more or less rapey type scenarios. Yeah. And this is just a bunch of showgirls dancing as a group with like these burlesque musical numbers like you'd go and see at a nice nightclub. And then there's some murder. Like, I think and they know, keep kind of separated. To get back to like the, the women murder, like rapey horror thing, it's interesting because I think because a dude is a victim here mm-hmm. usually. Yeah. and so you know you don't see that a lot in like horror films no. so like the dude actually gets seduced by the female vampire and is taken advantage of so it's an interesting subversion in that way I think yeah and I, sure. I never really felt like like because there was a female vampire like I never felt like there was like even though females were being victimized they weren't being victimized in the same way they are later like a male vampire isn't like seducing yeah. them really like they keep getting bit but like it's just this terrible tragedy that happens uh, which I appreciated because they like kept these two they kept the sexuality and they kept the vampirism more or less separated so the vampires weren't very sexy but the girls were and the girls never looked particularly sexy when they were getting attacked by vampires so like <laughs> they were combining the sex and violence really like they were both there but they weren't combined really that much in the same scene you do have that uh, those shots of the girl in bed sort of being beckoned hypnotically by a vampire and she's sort of like writhing because uh, she's getting turned on and then there's these like uh, sort of stock shots of like trees blowing in the wind. Uh, Train going in a tunnel. No, they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't, do that. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't go that far. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird how they smash stuff up like that. But uh, going back to what y'all were just saying, the um, the two main vampires that sort of descend upon them and kill people—they're a male and female couple, kind of. And the power dynamics there, the female vampire is actually totally the one in control. And she sort of sends this dude out to do her bidding, which is kind of an interesting shift in how you would normally see. Like, even, like, the Christopher Lee film would be completely different. Well, yeah, because that's Dracula. Because it's just straight-up Dracula, yeah. <laughs> I, I, would, I will say that uh, I watched another movie that was rushed out at the exact same time called The Playgirls and the Vampire. Uh, and they, <laughs> they were just like, how many of these can we make with the same set? And they did not hide the fact that these girls were erotic dancers. Like, they were, like, literal strippers in the film. And it was so weird because it was like more skin and sort of more hunting kills, but it didn't feel nearly as weird or as sexy as this one did. It was only worthwhile to watch just to see like, oh, this movie, this, uh, the vampire and the ballerina is actually like a well-made version of whatever this is, even though it's just like a small snippet of like Italian cinema. Yeah. And then after that, probably the most iconic film on this list, if you thought like, Oh, what is a ballerina horror film? Uh, Dario Argento's uh, Giallo witch film Suspiria from 1977. This American student enters a Italian ballet school and starts to notice that the people running it are very controlling and some girls are going missing and there's just the same menace that you'll see in most Giallo movies where like Someone will get stabbed by an arm extending from out of the screen yeah. to stab them. It's a murder mystery. Who's killing all these girls? But by the time you get to the climax, the mystery answer is never that satisfying. It's just like a beautiful, nasty thing to watch in the meantime. What's y'all's experience with uh, Suspiria? How familiar y'all y'all with this movie? Oh, I love Suspiria. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I love the way. It is set up in the way it looks. Um, and you know, I was talking about this when I was rewatching it with people. Um, how he originally wanted to write it for younger women. And so that's why you see like all the doorknobs like up high. And it would make more sense for it to be, you know, younger women living in this dormitory under like teacher control. So it's like interesting in that way that it's kind of like this weird like in between, you know, ballet, beautiful like bizarre masterpiece where people just happen to get killed in gruesome ways you yeah know? Like, <laughs> that's roundabout but yeah yeah, yeah like why would a 24 year old be like well yeah. i guess i have to live in a dorm now yeah uh you know whereas a 14 year old would be like well i i have to live in a dorm now <laughs> and the dorm has these uh it's very obvious that something's wrong there like there's one scene where it just starts raining maggots 
and the girls don't move out. They just sort of like go along with staying there. They're like, oh, I guess we're going to clean up the maggot problem and move on. Yeah, we got a weird crate of food, and the food was just rotted, and uh, we keep all the food in the attic above your bedrooms. It was and... probably not a dead body or anything. Yeah. yeah, no, we're not storing dead bodies in the attic. That would be crazy. Yeah, and probably after the first couple of your classmates go missing uh, and are found dead with giant shards of glass protruding from their heads, you might want to consider like moving to a new school. But they stick around. And I feel like most of the menace that you sort of sense immediately in the movie comes from the score from Goblin, where there's literal spoilers in the soundtrack. that They like whisper, <laughs> witch, 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 witch. <laughs> such an absurd soundtrack it's so it's somewhere between noise and prog i guess but it's so fun to listen to and they collaborated with him on probably four yeah, movies deep red is, and did they do um uh phenomenon i think maybe i know phenomena had um had some like 80s like hair bands mixed in there oh, too yeah but yeah goblin might have done some wrong. background yeah. work what there was too. the one with jennifer connelly that's, that's the one yeah, yeah. Okay, the, yeah the bugs. I, I feel like i feel like yeah goblin did some and of i feel that, like phenomenon's kind of like the age group he wanted to make suspiria you know mm-hmm. like yeah. those girls but instead two separate movies and both were great yeah <laughs> Not actually a lot of ballet content in this. <laughs> no, because it was too busy like trying not to get murdered, I guess, the whole time. <laughs> that they very rarely actually see their dance classes. They, uh, they do a lot of warm-ups and stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of practice scenes. But you never actually see what they're working on. Well, it's more of a school. Yeah, they kind of... Um... They kind of explain that at some point, too. They're like, we expect you to already know ballet when you get here. Uh, this is just for you to like specialize and do like new and interesting stuff. It's yeah, like a finishing school for but ballet. But you never see them like work on any choreography. They're always just stretching. Like <laughs> your ballet thesis you're mm. supposed to work on here. There's definitely more focus on like the strange rooms full of razor blades and like girls being pulled through windows. Uh, just ridiculous setups for these mysterious kills. Um, and by the end, I honestly just never care about who did the killing or anything like that. No, that's not really why we watched Giallo. Like, yeah. I feel like the movie kind of ends, I don't want to say in a whimper, but I don't think it's as strong as like well, the it first just hour or so. Yeah. yeah. There's no there's no resolution. There's no act after the climax. It just literally ends. And, you know, it's interesting <laughs> in the context of like the Three Mothers movies. I don't know if you guys have seen the other ones, yeah. but Inferno is kind of feels like the same way. And then, I don't Mother of Tears. I don't know. It's not is Inf- good. Is Inferno the one with the cats? Yeah. Okay, that is a ridiculous kill. Yeah. But I don't remember... I just remember there's a scene where someone throws a bunch of cats at a, at a girl yes. and she dies that way. Uh-huh. And then I just remember the bunker where all the witch stuff was was really beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. And that's the only two takeaways I have from that movie. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it kind of ends the same way. It's just like someone walking out, the house is falling down. <laughs> and then it's over. Yeah. yeah follow the house usher style like the house falls movie over yeah (laughs) and uh, i guess it's worth mentioning as well this was one of the last technicolor prints uh whoever used to do technicolor prints for italy he got that factory to print this movie um and you can see it in the colors it's like the most vivid film on this list besides the red shoes which is also technicolor and it's like true classic perfect technicolor whereas like suspicious colors aren't quite as brilliant they are uh, still really striking. Yeah, they're still really striking. Yeah, they're, yeah. In, it's I not mean, as clean looking. All the reds are red. And you know, that's what you want from Technicolors, those reds. Yeah. Which is important when you're, you know, showing a lot of blood. Very important. Very important. I mean, you mentioned Mother of Tears. Do you think he kind of fell off when he lost, like, the music and the colors? Ah. <sighs> I don't know that switched to digital yeah <laughs> the last really good one i know from him is opera which was like maybe late 80s early 90s and everything since then has been kind of kind of iffy and then jumping from 1977 all the way to 2003 uh speaking of weird treatment of colors uh we have guy madden's dracula pages from a virgin's diary and Shit. it doesn't feel like it's from 2003 isn't it's that weird it feels like it's from 1920 or something. I was gonna say like the 80s. Yeah. It seemed like it was from the 80s. Well Guy Madden's whole deal is to make something that feels sort of timeless. He makes this film look like a old silent horror from the 30s 
and he does weird uh, tints with the, f- the frame where it's mostly in black and white, but uh, it has that old school horror fr- uh, thing where like there'll be a-, a few scenes that are like red or green, but everything's that one monotone uh, color. Um, this is a literal ballet, just filmed as if it were an old horror dr- drama. I'd say it was a lot more enjoyable than I thought it was going to be. For something that's definitely just like an intellectual exercise, let's film a ballet about Dracula and turn it into a 1930s horror film. That sounds like it would get boring. But I think it it, was silent too. Yeah, silent. silent. I would say it's a lot funnier and just more exciting than I thought it would be. Yeah, I I love, love, love the scene in the bedroom with the little like gargoyle men. Like that was... It was so good. <laughs> I was trying to get a handle on what those were. They felt like sex demons or something. Yeah, they, they, they were like tormenting her. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know the original Bram Stoker story that well, uh, but I know this version. Um, it's this one girl who has three suitors and a doctor who is Van Helsing, um, who obviously eventually hunts down Dracula. Um, she gets converted into a vampire and becomes part of his harem of vampire girls that he keeps and they're really into drinking baby's blood and doing these sort of ritualistic dances it's like most of the film i i think he does this thing where he knows how to speed it up in the parts that are supposed to be funny so they actually like play like fresh and amusing but he'll also slow it down to like show you some of the more lyrical like ballet dancing um at times yeah i so I have read the book really recently, like all the way through for the first time, and it was actually really, really close to the book. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. Wow, <laughs> it's a ballet, but it's also really based off of a book um, in a way that only Guy Madden can pull off. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was really interesting, just um, ballet. I kind of really like ballet. I never go see enough ballet, so it's like perfect to have something like story ballet. And yeah, it was it's good. It's good. Yeah. I despised it. I thought it was <laughs> god awful. I thought the ballet choreography was bad and he because he's so busy being an auteur and showing off, he never shows their feet. He cuts mm-hmm. off their heads. You never see the full choreography because he's too busy being artsy and not like I don't know, filming things. Uh, he kept slapping vignettes on everything to make it look more old-timey. Uh, I kind of, I thought it was a little too pretentious. I thought he kind of, like, lost the horrifying parts and he kind of lost the ballet parts. So instead it just became, like, I don't know, a period piece-ish. I mean, I always find his movies a little taxing. The, uh, the one last year, The Forbidden Room, worked as, like, these sort of, like, short sketch films. It's great in GIF form. <laughs> makes great gifs but this worked for me i don't know this was around the time of uh the saddest music in the world which i think is his best yeah. movie to date um i think he was just like on something good at the time but i, I can definitely see see i like saddest music in the world it doesn't bother me yeah I, I don't need to see their feet i, I think <laughs> i think you know the thing that um kind of sold me on this is most of what i've seen by guy madden is his short films mm-hmm. and so much of his short films are just like very much like old school like based off Metropolis, basically, sort of things, you know? And so it kind of was, like, right in line with that. The culmination of, like, all the stuff he had been working on. Yeah. I could see a frustration if you wanted to watch, like, a production of this ballet for him not cutting out enough. Because he cuts it like a movie where you Mm -hmm. see, like, people's reactions and stuff like that. Well, he just pans in super close to their face, and it's like, well, this was a dance scene, like, a second ago. (laughs) Now why am I looking at this one dude across the room who's not dancing his face? Like... Go back to the dancing, guys. Why did you show me some dancing and then not show me some dancing? I think that's the idea of like turning it into like a traditional movie, and you're supposed to find that push and pull interesting between him like converting. I just thought he was being too pretentious and refusing to show me the dancing. He was like, "Look at all this dancing we practiced for weeks and did all this choreography on." Well, you can't see it because I'm gonna slap a filter on it. Well, was this um. I know it was, like, an actual ballet company and an actual ballet. I wonder mm-hmm. how much was, like, hey, you guys have already rehearsed this ballet. Like, you still have to rehearse it beforehand. I, I know, but, like, was the ballet on stage, you know, is what I wonder. Like, I feel like I've seen posters before for a Dracula ballet. So I feel like yeah. they, they probably had already. This was in their repertoire. Yeah. I, I think he undercuts some of that pretension, too, with humor. There are some, like... 
I'd jokes in this movie. Bad, I guess I don't know. The scene where Van Helsing like performs a gynecological exam and he looks disgusted is so fucking funny in this. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. It it has like an old school like silent silent comedy uh, sort of vamping to it. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of like a ballet where you have to perform for everybody in the room like all the way to the back sort of plays into his uh, sort of mocking for the camera. Like it's like really ridiculous like expressive humor. Uh that I think works well with what he does. <laughs> there's just no, there's it's, no way. I was gonna say we don't have to sell you on it. Yeah, yeah I don't need to be sold it, on it's this. good to have a, a differing opinion. Yeah, I just, I just don't need to watch more Guy Madden movies. I'm guessing. Like, I think that's the answer. Is I've seen one, I liked it. I've seen yeah. another, I didn't like it. I think it can be done now. <laughs> Maybe. You know, I would give another one a chance. His his shtick is pretty consistent. Like yeah. I feel like if you, you could get a handle on what he does, I like that forbidden room in GIF form. So again, like, yeah, like I was saying to you, like on um, via text, like I feel like his movies are like if an alien like was just monitoring Earth like from you know the early age of cinema and then came down now and was like I'm gonna make movies. <laughs> like this is what the movies would be like. Is, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, it's it was also kind of weird here because it, it seems like he usually works with like actual celluloid, and this was definitely like a cheap digital yeah. production. Uh, it was kind of weird here seeing what you were saying earlier, where you could tell he was like slapping a filter on something mm-hmm. instead of what he would usually do is like kind of intentionally degrade film. Uh, so I don't know, maybe if this was a bigger budget, they would be more like visually gorgeous or something. But I, I yeah. thought it was interesting at least. Yeah, maybe we would have been able to actually like fit the like say. set on the uh, the piece of film. <laughs> Do we need to just uh, give him more money for that? Yeah, I, I I imagine it's much easier for him to fund his short movies than it is yeah. these like full length features. And then the last film that we have is from 2010, uh, Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, what uh, which I was kind of worried about when we picked it because I hadn't seen it since the theater, and I was like, is this actually a horror film? Like I couldn't remember quite. This is, <laughs> this is like psychological horror, body horror, uh, it's got everything. weird dream imagery. Um, definitely borrows a lot backwards uh, in in the genre. Um, Allie was kind of saying this earlier before we started recording yeah. that uh, there were things that you noticed that uh, he had he had sort of lifted wholesale from. Yeah, I have a quote from the Red Shoes actually. It is much more disheartening to have to steal than it is to be stolen from. And yeah, that's like right at the beginning of the Red Shoes. So. That's when uh, the composer um, sort of accuses his yeah, teacher from stealing from him. Yeah. Yeah. I think he definitely intentionally nods to the Red Shoes a oh, couple yeah. times. But yeah, there is sort of a uh, this has been done before mm-hmm. feeling to that. Uh, particularly, there's an early shot where um, Natalie Portman's protagonist is uh doing pirouettes doing pirouettes and the camera does this like whip and stop motion from her pov that was definitely like directly from the red shoes this one doesn't have the color of that movie at all no No. it's mostly black and white like it's not supposed to be a black and white film but like it's new york so everyone wears black except our protagonist because she's really weird and just wears white all the time well i think you know the adjective that comes up most in the dialogue is frigid you know and so everything just feels very cold you know yeah it's 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 the middle of winter in new york or maybe it's like early winter in new york there's no snow on the ground as far as we see but it's still like everyone's bundled up in scarves everyone's wearing pea coats and like tall boots and natalie portman is uh physically emaciated in this film so she looks even colder than everyone else because she's like no my stomach turned a couple times like she's lifting Mm -hmm. a shirt off of her head and you see how thin her arms are and i forgot that arms could be that thin like i i I have forgotten because like my arms are no longer that thin and so when i'm taking off a shirt my arms are much better than that so i'm like oh god yeah i was gonna say (laughs) i used to be 14 i forgot about that i'm thin and yeah i was like oh I'm still just... Well, it's an actress that we know what she, like, normally looks like, and we know that she changed her body for the role. And she plays kind of like a caged bird character, where, like, she has a a mother and a ballet teacher who control every aspect of her life. And she's she's 28 years old... 24. 24? 24? Okay. Do they say that? She does... Or no, she says, like, I'm, I'm... 
I'm so and so years old, mother. Right. Okay. Was it 28? I don't know. She's in her 20s. Yeah. And she's yeah. never left home. She's never had a sexual experience. She still has, like, stuffed animals everywhere in yeah. her room. It's oh, yeah. Kind of and it's one of the contributing factors yeah. in her wardrobe. She's wearing, like, pink, fluffy, like, white cloud scarves. And everyone else is wearing a good black wool scarf, as you yeah. should wear. And she's got these ones with, like, this, like, Angora trim on them. Like, yeah. very, very limited, too. I, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm into the pink, but... Yeah, it, it does <laughs> cross yeah, a line. I'm not, like, yeah. into, not into color, but, like, compared yeah. to how everyone else wears, There's, like, yeah. I expect her to, like, also be like, really into horses, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. Like, she does like, seem... a certain, like, childishness about, like, yeah. her, her it's like, infantile. Yeah. And, like... The scene where she tries masturbating for the first time uh, oh. is really uncomfortable because the camera's specifically positioned to catch the like stuffed animals and like child imagery in the background and, and like, she has like cute underwear on they're like these little oh, white cotton God. panties with like <laughs> like maybe they're not white maybe they're like pink or something but with like like little scalloped trim on them yeah. and they keep showing her butt and my my favorite thing is the wallpaper the butterfly wallpaper oh. it's like <laughs> like you don't see that outside of like an 11 year old's bedroom you yeah. know and her mom puts her to bed at night with this uh, ballet box. Yeah, she has oh, yeah. listener music box every night before going to bed because her mommy talks her in. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> really uncomfortable. Uh, and she is color-coded to mostly wear white because uh, then we have Mila Kunis' character comes in um, to match the, the Swan Lake uh, theme of the movie. Um, and she wears like all black and is like the badass who like does ecstasy and parties and just does fucks men came in from San Francisco whoa (laughs) and she's like late to class which drives her nuts and that's the whole push and pull of the film is that uh, Natalie Portman's this like perfect perfectionist this like porcelain doll and then you have this like almost like demonic character coming in messing up her life but not on purpose like she's just kind of being herself and it brings out this like these feelings of like hatred and jealousy in Natalie Portman and basically causes a psychological break and probably the last 40 minutes of this movie I don't know what's real and what's not and it doesn't really matter but definitely that second half is when it gets into like real horror territory yeah Yeah. really gross body horror with her hands and her feet because I mean a ballet dancer's feet are extremely important to them uh, and their hands the way their hands look when they're holding them so the body horror involving her limbs, like even the very first scene of the movie, she's stepping out of bed, and it as is. she's putting her foot on the ground, you can just hear everything popping in her foot, and they like magnify those sounds and amplify them, so you can hear all the crunching of her like nasty, deformed ballet dancer feet, like yeah. just like crackling oh. about. Just like, oh, that's yes. great fully. Oh. It's, it's it sets a tone. Yeah. It, yeah. Oh. And I don't know. The other thing that gets me is like all the bending backwards legs and the like uh, yeah. picking like feathers out of her back like, she starts oh. literally turning into a bird yeah she during her psychological break like she has a scratching issue where she can't stop scratching herself and at one point that like combines with her like psychological break so that she thinks that the scratching is because she's growing actual bird feathers out of her back because she is the swan uh, there's a scene where she's getting choked and her neck all of a sudden stretches out like a swan neck. Yeah, um, yeah. She has these like weird goosebumps where she looks yeah, like a plucked I, turkey. I, I forgot about that. Yeah. Like they very carefully use CGI to overlay like goose flesh over her skin in like scenes, but very quickly. So you just barely see it. So you think maybe you're seeing something. They're like really good at making you think that you're seeing things. Yeah. When really she's the one who's seeing things. I'm, I'm glad you said CGI because I think this is like the best possible use of that tool uh it doesn't overwhelm the movie but it it enhances what it's trying to do yeah i mean definitely it's hard showing a psychological break accurately and i think like they're trying their best to like show you what it could possibly look like like if you really think you're turning into a swan like some of it's already starting to look dated Mm -hmm. a couple of scenes like when her neck stretches or when her knees snap backwards all of a sudden and she has bird legs like you can see the clumsiness in the CGI now because CGI has gotten even better since then. But, it, but like, it still it, looks good. Yeah, no, it has. It can be bad. It can be bad. I, you know, it's all in the funding. But yeah, yeah, it's yeah, in the funding. Like, if, if you yeah. have Star Wars money to spend, you can make anything look perfect. Like. Well, of course, now they're just going to blow up real stuff. No, <laughs> yeah, they have Star Wars money to spend. But yeah, I thought of this like sort of like Ex Machina. Like, it's it's tastefully oh, yeah. Yeah. done CGI. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... it's 
they don't use any more than they need to, and the only time it like actually takes over the screen besides the legs bending back is when she like grows her wings during her like climactic performance. Um, but I thought it looked pretty good. I don't know. Okay. I thought it was still like it still held up. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it still looks really good, especially in the more subtle scenes, like when her like flesh like goose prickles like for just a second, like it ripples across her skin. Like that looks so great. Yeah. Uh, or when she like just sees like she sees like her doppelganger, like the mm-hmm. do- Dostoevsky like the double like she sees her doppelganger like every so often out of the corner of her eye and like the flashes they do for that cgi like looks so good because it, it makes you catch your breath and think like yeah. you're seeing things that aren't there it's so quick i you know and it's so funny um another like i didn't see this movie in theaters i didn't see it until a few years ago um and i think one of the things that struck me then and one of the things that strikes me now there's this one scene you know this whole time, like, there's splashes of, like, dark figures out of the side of your eye. And then there's this one scene where, you, like you said, you don't know what's real and what's fake. And she's standing on the stage, and the guy who's dressed up as, like, the evil wizard goes past. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, what's about to happen? And he's just like, hey. Hey, yeah. hey what's like, up? <laughs> <it's this> <laughs> like, oh, you're just a ballet dancer. Okay. You're, you're, not, you're yeah. not a figment. Yeah, you're, you're just you're, some dude. You're real. <laughs> and the movie starts with her dancing with that demon in a void, which yeah. is, like, so beautiful and disturbing. I oh, felt I had the dream again, mom. It's a good sign. Is it? Cuz that was terrifying. <laughs> I felt like assured as soon as that opening scene of her dancing with that demon like, "Oh yeah, this is horror." I wasn't like reimagining it as something I wanted it to be. Yeah. Um it just been so long. Uh so speaking of like besides the CGI like weird visual stuff that shouldn't work but does. Uh, there's a lot of shaky camera in this movie. Uh, it's a lot of tight shots of her walking down these like New York streets, and the the camera's like all over the place. And I usually like am annoyed by that, but I think it works really well in here because it makes makes you feel really uneasy. Yeah, no, yeah, it seems like she's in a dangerous situation. When really those are the times where she's the most safe is when she's just like walking around New York. Like that's <laughs> not that's not the real danger. Like they keep presenting all these other times as danger. Like her house is dangerous, and walking down the street is dangerous, and in all these situations but then it turns out that the ballet itself is what's dangerous to her (laughs) like yeah I kept expecting like Winona Ryder to like come stab her or something yeah yeah (laughs) or like one of the other girls to like shiv her yeah over something Uh, and obviously the ballet is like what's most damaging to her psychologically like she shouldn't be dancing ballet like she shouldn't be doing anything that involves like a lot of like devotion uh, because she's so unstable Uh, and I like that this film, like, it makes it, it makes all of that stuff seem scary, but all the other films, other people are what's causing the, like, danger and the murder. But in this case, it's the ballet, like, itself that's, like, yeah. the damaging thing. I think they really do a good job of presenting ballet as something horrifying, like, based on, like, how her body, like, undergoes a transformation over the course of this, and, like, how her brain, like, breaks down during it, uh... Which, I, I don't know. This one made the ballet itself more horrifying than any other. And it balanced ballet with like regular drama really well as far as like just screen time goes Mm -hmm. yeah it's the most like well mixed version of this unlike uh the guy madden movie is like all ballet yeah and then vampire and the uh ballerina is like no ballet (laughs) like 0.1 percent ballet i was gonna say suspiria is like you know slight more ballet yeah yeah. and then the red shoes has 20 minutes of ballet yeah that one dose Something was interesting to me is uh, watching Black Swan and watching Suspiria is um, they both like have this um, like all the fellow ballet dancers things like they're just so like catty towards one another mm-hmm. and it's just like the competition for ballet is just too much. Too There's much. really none of that in the Red Shoes either. This this yeah. uh, Maura Shear is just like on top of her game. Yeah, she's and just she the best. Earns her way up the uh, the ranks. I think that one might be a little more realistic uh, in how the business works, too, because they have um, different levels within the same company. Like, the company will put on smaller shows mm-hmm. uh, and then have their big prestige shows, and they kind of fund each other. Um, yeah, but, like, you can go to, like, you can go to a 2 o'clock showing matinee on a rainy Saturday and watch Swan Lake, and then you can go to the theater, mm-hmm. you know, on a Friday night and see the red shoes, like... yeah. And then, and then Natalie Portman, like, she does have all that competition, and she does have all these people controlling her, but really, like, the, I guess the damage had already been done by the time we get there, because, like, everything that happens in the movie is just, like, her doing it to herself, which is really interesting way to, like, neutralize that threat. 
I knew earlier you were saying this is like one of your favorite horror subgenres. Uh, yeah. What is it about this particular combo? I don't. I don't know. I think you know the ballet lends itself to being like graceful and beautiful, and like it's one of those things where you know you go to a ballet and you're like in this beautiful like drama, but you know the behind the scenes are like so full of competition and so like fierce. But then it's also just pretty, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of room to just do, like, stylistic stuff. Like, Suspiria, like, even though there's not much ballet in it, it all feels kind of like a ballet set. Like, the scene where they go into the square in Munich, like, it's all lit. Like, it's like a two-dimensional set, you know? And so, even though there's not much ballet, it still is, like, very ballet. And yeah. It's just, like, that element yeah, of, those, like... Yeah, those scenes are so stylized. Yeah. All the sets are just too stylized yeah and it's like you know even those scenes that are shot on location like the one in the square in munich like it's it's just interesting because it gives directors so much like visual play yeah yeah because you're like it's it's in the ballet you know you can have a simplistic set that's lit with two different colors (laughs) or like the moon i don't know one of my weirder takeaways from black swan was not only like oh this is might actually be my favorite aronofsky besides the wrestler like those two are pretty up there for me but it also like reinforced like the neon demon was my favorite movie this year even though they don't necessarily look exactly alike that what you were just saying that like pristine precise visual focus uh Mm -hmm. with something like really horrific and something really like feminine i was just reminded of like watching the neon demon in the theater but yeah there there is something about like that performance and the Neon Demon has a little bit in common too because modeling mm-hmm. is also very. Yeah. And then you know you have you to have... change your body. Yeah. Other people don't want you to do it. There's competition. There's huge amounts of say, competition. There's girls in that as yeah. well. And it doesn't take place like I think maybe what we all like about these like ballet horror movies is that they're not taking place in our reality. Like we recently have like heard a lot of discussions from like uh, a couple of the other people we listen to, like Chelsea Handler, mm-hmm. uh, that. Not everything in movies has to be realistic. Like, I don't need my sex scenes to actually look like real sex. Like, that's not Oh, Rachel Handler. Rachel Handler. Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, So, yeah, we recently heard Rachel Handler talking about how, like, sex in movies doesn't have to actually look like sex. Like, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be funny and stylized and weird. And I don't necessarily need my murders to look like murders. I can have them weird and stylized and in two-dimensional sets that are lit with freak show lighting. Like, that's fine. And they were specifically talking about The Handmaiden, which is in this sort of... Even though it's not a horror film, it's a crime movie. It's in this same, like, playing with something really visual uh, and, like, precise and, like, you, something that's usually treated like a delicate object and making it like vivid and strong. Uh, it's it's really something I'm a huge sucker for. Which there wasn't a single movie on this list that I wasn't like super into. And I know CC didn't like the Guy Madden movie, but that's the only one I didn't like though. Yeah, yeah. other than that, I, yeah, even the one I wasn't too keen on the vampire, I still enjoyed it. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like oh this is the worst. <laughs> Why did Brandon make me watch this? <laughs> Uh, did y'all have a favorite, like a standout favorite in the set? I mean, the red shoes. I was gonna red say, shoes. always the red shoes. The red yeah. Shoes. I mean, and then Suspiria. Oh, wait, but maybe also Black Swan. Those yeah. are the, those are like the Holy Trinity. Yeah, those sure. ones were like the best made, too. So if I like, was also just thinking about like how much I enjoyed it, you know, I was really pleasantly surprised by the vampire and the ballerina, or the ballerina and the vampire. Like, yeah. I did really enjoy that one, like, more than I thought I would. That one did overcome expectations yeah. uh, more so than the rest of the movies on the list. For yeah, sure. like, I, I know Suspiria is good. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know the, the Red Shoes is great. Yeah. Like, Black Swan kind of surprised me. I didn't know I, if it was going to hold up. I forgot about, yeah. like, some of the stuff I, in it, so I was very pleasantly surprised. Again. Yeah, I, you know, I watched it a few years ago, and, you know, I liked it then. Um, I'm not the biggest Aronofsky fan, um... So I was, like, really pleasantly surprised to like it, even though I went in, like, oh, I'm going to hate this. So I watched it now, and I'm like, oh, that's a really good movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to rewatch it without the lens of just... Maybe I won't like, like it. it. Yeah. yeah. And you're just like, I already know I like it, so now I can just, yeah. like, enjoy it. Yeah. That's definitely in the upper tier of his work, too. Like, it might be one of the most best things he's ever put together. Um, did y'all have anything else you want to say about this uh, strange horror subgenre on the way out? Uh, well, I do wish that uh, the... 
girl uh, with a face full of teeth from The Cabin in the Woods had her own movie. <laughs> um, I think that would be a great ballet movie. She's a beautiful, cute little eight-year-old ballerina, but instead of a face, she's got like something like a lamprey's mouth, just rows and rows of circular circular rows of teeth. Um, and I would really like to see a horror movie with her in it. Um, <laughs> I feel like Cabin in the Woods really dropped the ball when they decided not to go with her as the, the big dad. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're overdue for another ballet movie. Like, how long has it been since? Uh, six years. Six it's years. Six years We're since Taranofsky. So. That's five years too long. Yeah, we need another <laughs> ballet movie. Yeah. Well, if you want to check out anything on the site that we have going on, um, Allie's pick for movie of the month uh, is running all this month in December. Uh, we watched this Canadian black comedy called Last Night about the end of the world. Which has become strangely um, pertinent to the times, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're laughing through the pain. I was gonna say, inadvertently you picked that movie, yeah. And then after we wrap up on last night uh, in January, we will be talking about our movie of the year uh, lists, um, both on this podcast and on the website. So stay tuned for that. Bye, everybody. Night. Night.